Matthew, you might think that uh, there's a whole lot in the Bible about him, maybe even in particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, but there's not. Uh, and so what we do is we go and we look at what we have, and sometimes it's the lack of information that speaks volumes, and in this case, the, the lack of information about Matthew from Matthew uh, tells us a lot. It tells us a lot because obviously it says right off and right up front that Matthew's not about himself, okay? He's not. And it points us particularly to, I think, the work of the Holy Spirit in working through Matthew and what we have uh, that's provided, you know, through his pen with the Holy Spirit, of course, being the author. But we don't get into subjections here and speculations about Matthew. We take what we have from the Scripture, what's said about him, what he says about himself, uh, what Luke says about him, and so forth. And uh, we can make some reasonable assumptions okay, about him. And I think they're more than assumptions. They typify, to some degree, what kind of person he was. And I don't know what you think about him when you think about Matthew, Levi, What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about him, obviously? Tax collector. Tax collector. Okay. And that's huge. That's really, really huge in his life. And we'll look at that in some detail this morning. Well, his name, you know, his name's not Matthew. That's not what he was born with. What was he born with? It's his Jewish name. is Levi. That's his Jewish name. And that's how he was known, and from my study, it appears that he was not referred to as Matthew until after he became an apostle. And that title was given him, and, uh, and I haven't looked at that extensively, but uh, I have at least one comment from a writer about that. So there he is, he's got a new name. Now, what's so significant about that? What's in a name, we say? Not as important today, I think, maybe to some degree, but back in that day, a name was very important, was it not? Uh, Because it was given to say something about the individual. In this case, Matthew means gift of the Lord. Gift of the Lord. Now, that right there is interesting because we'll we'll dig into his tax-collecting past here in, in just a minute because he was a tax collector when Christ called him. We'll look at that. But what does that say about him, that he gets a new name? What, what was obviously noticed about him, some way, somehow? Yeah, there was, a, there was a change in his life. And not only that, that along with that change began, you know, began to be where you could see some things, some characteristics in his life that were quite, quite notable. So that's a pretty decent thing to say about somebody, that their very presence or their skills, if you will, or their abilities or their demeanor or maybe even their character, certainly, uh, would, would typify them as a gift from the Lord, right? Now, that is light years from what he was, okay? Light years from what he was. So right off the bat, you know, we can tell some things from just a little bit of cultural knowledge and understanding how things worked socially back then. With this new name, that's quite, quite different for him, and uh, he's undergone a change. So, 
It's good for us to reflect this morning, to bring it home and and remind ourselves once again that the power of the gospel, the presence of Jesus Christ in our life will always affect change in our life. It will. And we can evaluate our life and how we're moving forward in this life. We can evaluate the progress, if you will, the quality, if you will, of our sanctification Are we putting up a fight against what God is wanting to do in our life? Using the people that we know, our fellowship here, the opportunities that we have at work and with our family. How He's leading and drawing us toward a greater level, if you will, greater opportunities of service. All has to do with our sanctification. Matthew got to the point where what people thought about him was the fact that he was a tax collector. But he was a gift from the Lord. Praise God. He changes us, does he not? He changes us. So we look at that up front in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. Mark calls him there by his Jewish name, Levi. Okay. He's Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And then Luke calls him Levi. Let's see, man, Luke 5, 27 through 29. And again in Matthew, uh, no, that's in Matthew, and then in Matthew, and then Luke 16, 15, he calls him Levi. Acts 13, where Luke writes, calls him Levi. Uh, but he was, of course, one of the 12 apostles. I think it's interesting the way even a single writer bounces back and forth with his name, okay? It may be that at some point they wanted to recognize him with his Jewish name in an effort to kind of bypass, if you will, his past. Okay, that might have been what they were thinking about. Okay, and then later, and it just depends on whether either they're talking about his calling or whether they're talking about him or just mentioning him in the list of apostles that give his name. But we'll see how that plays out. Uh, He was, of course, one of the twelve. And he was there simply because Christ, Christ Jesus, reached down and purposed to set his will, if you will, upon Matthew. Now, we can't, we can't tell you everything that happened in Matthew's life uh, before his call. We, we know in fairly good detail because a tax collector's position was so prominent we know what his life was like in detail, most detail, from that fact that he was indeed a tax collector. We can tell you a lot about that, and we'll explore that. But isn't it interesting that the Lord God reaches down and touches this man? As I told you before, he called him when he was a tax collector. Now, we don't know what uh, Levi had heard up to that point. We don't know. He just was told, follow me, okay? He says he got up and went. We'll look at that in a little bit. We don't know if he'd been out, you know, to hear Christ. We know that he had to hear because of his position. He was in a position where he eyeballed people every day. Every day, that was his job. But whether or not he had actually gone out, you know, into the countryside and stood out there on a hill or whatever, and all these multitudes of times that Christ talked. Remember, John tells us that if we wrote down everything that Christ did, there wouldn't be enough books to write it all down. We seem to to lose that fact sometimes, but there was a lot going on. All these miraculous things happening. 
He obviously heard about them, and whether or not he witnessed them, we don't know. But God was working on his heart, was working on his heart. It would have been a very difficult thing, a very significant thing, to be sitting, as it says, at the tax office. He was in charge of a tax office. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was kind of up there at least a notch or two. We'll look at that more clearly in a moment. But for Christ to come by and say, okay, follow me, and it says that straightway he got up and he went and he followed him. That's all the information we have. Now that's the information that Matthew gives us, right? I was at the tax office. The Lord came by. He said, follow me. I got up and followed him. And he doesn't give us all these other details, which are most certainly there. We don't know. We have to dig a little deeper to find some information. Matthew referred to himself as the tax collector in his gospel. Chapter 10, verse 3. What does that say about him? From the time he's writing the gospel, okay, the time that's transpired, all that's happened in his life, how significant is it that he goes back and refers to himself? He gives his new name, Matthew, but he makes a point of putting in there the tax collector. What do you think he might be thinking about then? We can speculate a little bit here. Yeah, right along that line. Or certainly... He's overwhelmed. He's very cognizant of where he was in his life. And this miraculous, miraculous uh, intervention from the Lord God that has changed his life. And then also, referring to himself as Matthew and not Levi, might indicate that he's identified with that. He's a humble man. We can see that. We can see that, as I said earlier, by what he doesn't say, what he doesn't put in here. This Gospel of Matthew is not about Matthew, is it? It's about the Lord Jesus and his Jewish friends, Matthew's Jewish friends. So, he's Matthew, the tax collector, in chapter 10, verse 3. So I can say, you know, this speaks uh, and reflects on his humility Uh, the fact that, you know, self-abasement is apparent in his life. Can't imagine the level of scrutiny that his life must have been under throughout the years as he continued in that fashion. Like all the apostles, except for Judas, uh, he was from Galilee. And that probably didn't help him much, you know. Wasn't a whole lot different than Nazareth. You remember the Bible says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, okay? But Galilee here wasn't any place as far as geographically. You know, it wasn't some, some place that people would visit. It wasn't known for its great intellectual prowess and productions of people, you know, who contribute to intellectual society. It wasn't any of that at all. It was a very rural place. It was uh, made up largely of small towns, small fishing villages. He was a rural kind of guy, okay, average kind of guy, you might say. Uh, again, not, not a high society place, uh, you know, kind of a country place. This is where he was from. And, you know, they had their own 
identification there in Galilee. They had their own little dialect. If somebody was born and raised in Galilee, you could tell pretty much from their talk, the way they talked, where they were from. Like, you can probably tell that I'm from Ackworth, right? (laughs) Okay. But that's the way it was. And that's, in part, who he was. This is interesting. And we think about how God chooses people. Uh, The Bible does tell us much about, if you will, the, the thought process or how God goes about doing this. The things that are important to him when he sets his heart upon Someone, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And then again, verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man, why it says, so that no man may boast before God. That has not changed. God cannot use you and I to any large degree if we're not humble before Him. He can't do it. He gets all the honor. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. We have nothing to bring. Now, doesn't that run cross-grain with what our society says about us nowadays, right? I get upset sometimes when I go in a meeting, even in my line of work, which is not as prevalent as it used to be, but, and there's some young whippersnapper in there, some up-and-coming guy. And, you know, and you can tell their motivation is to, and you'll be familiar with this phrase, to own the room, okay? To, to be the guy with all the answers, all right? To, to be the one who can just take us down this road of knowledge and intellect that's going to make everything work out just fine for us, right? Let me out of here, that's what I say. So. <laughs> but they learn, don't they? They learn, and we learn as we go along. But God knows. He knows what's required, first of all, in order for us to hear His voice clearly. You want to hear the voice of God? Then you don't want to be enamored by the things of the world, do you not? And we could go on and find verse after verse after verse. James talks to us about trying to please the world. And this is something that's that's ingrained in us if we're not careful. And we become so concerned about what everybody else thinks. And we should focus our attention upon God and upon His influence, His demand in our life. And when we're focused on Him, when He has, as it says, our whole heart, when we're fully determined to serve Him, period, then we begin to hear from Him most clearly. That's what happens. And God doesn't depart from that in any way. In fact, he personif- it's personified, if you will, by the way that He has pursued and brought Matthew around, as Paul tells us here as he's talking to the church at Corinth. Christ disdained religious elitism, did he not? He didn't like it. He thought it was the greatest 
offense against what he was trying to do because that's a terrific obstacle for people who are already cemented, if you will. They're already committed to a way of life in the religious sense. In other words, they've got their religion, they've got their view of God already nailed down, right? And they don't want anything rocking that boat. They don't want that. And this is the essence of what Christ was saying to the Jewish community, right? He's saying, hey y'all, you got it all wrong. Alright? In fact, you've missed your Messiah. You're in the process of missing the visitation. You claim to know what the Bible says. You claim to know what the prophets uh, and the law said, what the Psalms said. You claim to know that, but you really don't. And Jesus says over in, what was it, uh, Matthew 15, I believe it is. Yeah, He refers to these people, these, the Jewish elite, if you will, the religious elite. He begins by saying, first off, let them alone. Uh, a, a chilling, chilling declaration from the Lord, if you will. Let them alone. Just leave them alone. And that's where He follows up by saying, because they are blind leaders of the blind. They don't know where they're going. And they've got a following. They're leading other people along with them. In fact, he says what Matthew 23 says, you go out and you grab somebody and bring them in and you make them twice the son of hell that you are. That's what he said. Whoa, that's some heavy language, isn't it? He didn't put up with that. He hit it really, really hard. He talked the most harsh, if you will. It seems like the words come off the page harsh just by what he's saying, okay? You know, he calls them later, you know, whitewashed walls, hypocrites, full of dead men's bones. You know, he lets them have it because they're such a stumbling block. By the time you get over to Luke 15, Luke 15, not Matthew, Luke 15, when he starts talking about the parables and he gives those Three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then, of course, his longest parable, the lost son. That's his audience primarily. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's hitting on them again. He's trying to show them there, look, he's, he's painting a picture of this poor old sinner boy who got away, got away from his family, got away from his country, got away from anything moral. He's just the worst of the worst. And then he turns around and says, and that's exactly what you are. And it just doesn't seem to be getting through. We don't know for sure. But he don't put up with that. And he doesn't like, I guess you could say, this religious elitism. He calls it what it is. And he talks to people who are mixed up in that through their Judaism. Talks to them very, very harshly. The religious leaders of Matthew's day, in return, what? What was their response? They hated him. You know, we like to make the picture and rejoice around the, the picture of the Christ. And I think my earliest recollection as far as a, a painting or some artist rendition is, of course, Christ with the lamb over his shoulder, you know, and his, his, you know, healing somebody and how loving. It's sitting with the little children. I can remember these pictures in the church that I used to go to. Uh, you know, all your Sunday school material, you know, was always filled with that. You didn't get the other stuff very much, all right? 
about him taking people to task and frustrating them, beating them at their own game. They come to him and try to trick him, try to trick him into saying something about Caesar and so forth, trying to trick him and going against the law of Moses, for instance, when you're talking about divorce, and they couldn't do it. They're just frustrated. And they hated him for it. They hated him for it. How do you react when the Word of God, in some fashion whether it's, uh, I don't care, if it's a song, a gospel song, certainly from the page itself, from preaching, from teaching. How do you respond when the Word of God touches your heart and says, oops, you need to look at this. You need to examine this. You need to find this thing, whatever it is, that the Word of God and the Spirit of God has just put its finger on in your heart and life, and you need to be willing to go there. You need to find its root. You need to be able to do that. How do you respond to that? Do you rejoice? Do you? Does Hebrews chapter 12 pop into your mind about how God must really love you and how He's treating you like a true child of His because He's getting our attention? He's disciplining us, if you will, taking us to that place. And we see all this working. And I see all this working in the life of Matthew, even if you will. The religious leaders hated him, not just because of his undeniable miracles. Now, this was really tough for them. There were too many of the miracles, tons of them. They were all very public, no sleight of hand. And you understand they don't deny the miracle, right? They don't. That is, that is phenomenal. And you couch that in that particular day and time when there hadn't even been, there was never a disease diagnosed until hundreds of years later. No diagnosis. Just a response. Treat the symptoms. And he, Christ, comes on the scene and as it says, virtually obliterates, you know, disease and everything wherever he goes. Can you imagine the astronomical impact of what's going on in Matthew's world? And also it highlights just how deeply ingrained these Jewish elitists were. They would not let go of that system. They would not let go. And to me, it points to the fact that unless unless Christ Himself reaches down, reaches in, isn't that what we believe and teach? Unless He reaches down, reaches in that life, and plants that seed, and causes that seed to grow, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And that can be seen clearly, clearly in Matthew's day. This is the whole dynamic from a broad perspective looking down. This is what's going on. This is, if you will, the feel, it would seem, in that community, in the various communities at that time. Luke 5.31 Luke, Jesus answers them and says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's not just making a simple declaration. It's more than that, as I understand it. You know, in the original, it's, it's saying that 
if you, if you want to receive what I'm telling you, you have to be willing to repent. He's making it personal. What I'm telling you is for those who see themselves as needing repentance. And you recall, the religious elite, they didn't think that way. Don't lump them in with sinners, certainly tax collectors, because he said on one occasion, hey, uh, the lowlifes, if you will, the tax collectors, the sinners, which would include prostitutes and everybody else, he says they enter heaven before you. Really? Yeah. That's heavy. That's heavy language. And they hated him for it. And they could not get anything over on him. We had nothing going to happen to Christ until his time, right? Nothing's going, nothing's going to happen to him. Christ himself knew that. No. And what a testimony it is. I mean, even, even when they come to get him, finally... If you look clearly, I mean, right up until the time they take him, they hadn't planned to do so because they didn't want to do that because of the Passover. But no, in God's timetable, this was the right time. So in his providence, in his determinate will, it happened. You know, how, how hard is it for somebody just to simply realize that they're just not in charge, Right? We get any lessons out of that in our own life? I'm just not in charge. It doesn't matter how hard I try to make this. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not in charge. God is in charge. Really runs cross grain with us, does it not? Well, <clears throat> it can be argued that Matthew's <clears throat> Matthew was perhaps the most notorious of sinners among the twelve apostles because he was indeed a tax collector, a publican. And by that I mean, uh, you can go back and look at some of the writings about them during that time, you know, again, from a culture and sociological standpoint. And people would have been of the mind that you must be really demented to even consider being a tax collector. In other words, they must have been something wrong with you for a long time before you would agree to do this. I mean, they would it'd be like, don't you know what people are going to think about you? Don't you know what's going to happen to your life? That your family's pro- probably not even going to mention your name anymore. And yet, this was the road that Matthew had gone down. And yet, he keeps, in his gospel, he continues to keep himself in the background. At all times, his name is mentioned only twice regarding his call in 9-9 and regarding the list of apostles that follows in 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. Once again, focusing on this element of humility. Every time I think about humility and you know, serving the Lord, the necessity of humility, my mind goes to Numbers chapter 12 because of that verse that we have there. What is it? Uh, Uh, 12.3, I believe it is, where it refers to Moses. It says that he, at that time, was the most humble person on the face of the earth. You think humility was important in order to hear clearly the voice of God? You think humility is important where, like it says, that Moses 
and the Lord God, and we can't even, I can't even comprehend this picture, but Moses, that he talked to Moses just kind of like I'm talking to you right now. That's what it says. He had this kind of interaction with him. Some say that that's proof that Moses didn't write numbers because he wouldn't have said that about himself. Nah, Holy Spirit's doing this work, not Moses. But it's important. It's important for us to... If we get nothing else this morning, it's important for us to look at where we are in our humility. If we want to be used of God. Very important. So, I'm going to move on from that. Matthew, the tax collector. Well, as a publican as it is, you know, when he's called, he's sitting there at the tax office in 9-9. Jesus Passes on from there, it says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And what's interesting here, I've already mentioned, but what's interesting here is that that's it. That's all Matthew gives you. That's it. Nothing else about his life. Nothing else about his struggle. Nothing else about his past. And uh, he leaves it there. And he finds himself, you know, you know, he's just one of the most hated and despised people. Serving an oppressive, occupying foreign government, that's what he was doing. They were hated. And they were considered really worse, if you will, than the occupying Romans. Literally considered to be worse they were considered, and I like this, and this was an education for me, they were considered worse than the Herodians. You know what a Herodians are? Jews loyal to the Idumean dynasty of the Herods. You got that? He was worse than that. The worst, of, even from a Jewish standpoint, they were hypocrites. <laughs> okay. So, once again, you're talking about the lowest, the lowest of the low. One comment said that they were always considered to be unprincipled, vile, despicable people. Scoundrels, if you will. Only a certain kind of people would even want to do this. Let's not only serve and occupy an army, okay, one that's oppressive to us, even though there was some political allowances going on just to keep the peace. You know, you see that between Caiaphas and Pilate and all that other stuff later. But it was difficult very difficult day for a publican. There were two, ki- two kinds of tax collectors. Let's do a little, little bit of history here. And I think I've got this right. I tried to get my machine to pronounce it for me. G-A-B-B-A-I, Gabai, I think is one kind, and Machus. They're the two kinds. And then when you look at the Machus, you've really got two kinds of them. You've got what they refer to as the great Machus and the little Machus. All of these are tax collectors. Gebei were like general tax collectors, if you will. They collected property taxes. They collected income taxes, uh, what like poll taxes, smaller taxes. You know, that, that's what they did. That's what they collected. And I think that's interesting because that's kind of what people would expect to pay. Okay? They would kind of expect that. You know, even in our day, we can identify with that. But then when you look at these, they're called the Machus, that's M-O-K-H-E-S, they collected a duty on imports and exports, goods of all, 
all types of goods that dealt with just domestic trade. Basically, anything that moved on the roadway. In fact, the Romans allowed them to tax a vehicle based on how many axles it had. I always wondered why they got these carts with one axle. You know, they put, a, put another, put some more wheels on that thing. It won't tip over. Well, it throws you into another tax bracket, okay? So, you know, that's what happens. You've got uh, the great Marcus that stayed behind the scenes and so forth. They kind of ran things. They hired other tax collectors. This is what Zacchaeus was. He was a great Marcus. That's what he was. He was, he was a super rich dude. That's what he was. Then you've got the little Marcus, if you will. They operated the tax office. Like I say, and that's what Matthew was. A step above just a regular publican or a publican eye. He was... A notch above that, running and overseeing an office, which put him face to face with people day in and day out, right there on the street, day in and day out. So no doubt, I guess kind of like a barbershop, kind of like a beauty parlor. You got all kinds of information coming in and going out. And he heard those things. But why did they hate him? Well, they collected money, as I said, from the occupying government. They had purchased this franchise. The territories were divided out. How he got the money to do that, don't know. Don't know if he came from a wealthy family or if he had a good fishing business or whatever. Made tents, whatever. We do not know, but we know that he purchased it. Maybe he come or came by it through some political means, but we have nothing that would relate him to anybody else in the government or Roman government that we know of or in Judaism. There's no information about that. And what they could do, they, they were allowed to collect over and above. Now get this, when you, when you don't like the IRS nowadays, just remember this. They had a certain amount that they had to collect. And they were held accountable for that. They could go to jail, they could go to prison if they didn't collect those taxes. Okay, but then the Romans said, well, whatever else you can get, it's up to you. And they only got a percentage of that. So that's the way the system worked. So you see, especially if they're uh, in that branch of taxing where they're taxing imports and things like that, they could just pick something and say, oh, tax, there's a tax on that. And they set the tax standard for that. So what happens? A lot of abuse. Oh, you mean this is taxed today, and the last time I dealt with you, you didn't even know about this, this wasn't taxed, right? Right? And not only that, there's the issue of how much. What? Well, it was so much then and now it's this? Based on what? Totally arbitrary. You take somebody who's a little bit unscrupulous and what happens? Before long, they got a bag of money, don't they? And how tempting is that? The Bible tells us how tempting that is. It is a root of all kinds of evil, it says. Money, 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 money. You know, we see that nowadays, don't we? I thought it was interesting, this late, latest tragedy that was just suffered in, in Las Vegas. I was interesting to find out a little bit about this guy who perpetrated this thing. I'm not going to say his name. But the man was a millionaire. Okay, that's what they say. He owned properties here and there. Well-to-do. Had a house in Florida. Had one in Montana. Had a nice place in Las Vegas, I guess, or whatever. And we know that money and the things that money provides doesn't fill that hole, does it? Won't do it. Won't happen. 
Well, this is what Matthew was. You know, in the Bible, there's only three times that it even says anything about tax collectors as individuals. Of course, you've got Matthew, you've got Zacchaeus, and then you've got the guy over there in Luke, what, Luke 18, who went up to pray with the Pharisee. We'll look at him in just a minute because that brings something interesting to this story. I think I'm going to get finished. But they hated Matthew for these reasons. They'd oftentimes, they'd use, they'd get somebody to strong arm individuals. They'd find a big burly guy that didn't smell good and hadn't shaved in a while, and they'd send him out to collect money. They'd send him out and say, go get that money. And he would literally, you know, get the money, you know, in a strong arm tactic from people. So they were indeed considered worst of the worst. So what was the result of all this? What was the result of being a tax collector? Can we accumulate anything based on the information that we do have? Well, obviously, a lot of people became filthy rich, did they not? It indicates that Zacchaeus, for instance, was just just very, very rich man. All from basically extortion, you know, holding his position and his uh, opportunities over people. Total outcast. Uh, and it's interesting, too, <coughs> from a religious standpoint, when it, when it comes to the temple, now he was Jewish, when it comes to the temple, they could not go past, because they were a tax collector, even though they were a Jew, they could not go past the court of the Gentiles. If you're familiar with how the temple is set up, if you've got a, a MacArthur Study Bible, there's a good diagram in there, and you can see where people based on who they are, if they're proselytes or whatever, they can only go so far, you know, right up to where the priest goes into the Holy of Holies. You know, there's just certain places you can go based on who and what you are. And even though he's a Jew, because he's a tax collector, he can go, he could not go past the court of the Gentiles. Now, you know what they thought about Gentiles. That was as far as he could go. No further. He'd have to worship, as it says, from afar. He couldn't go any further. And we see that, and I refer to Luke chapter 18, where you're talking about that humble tax collector that went up to pray, and you've got the <clears throat> Pharisee on one side. It says, and the, the, the tax collector went up to pray. And you know the story. I won't read it, but the, the, the less than humble fellow, the Pharisee said, Lord, I'm thankful. You know, you've blessed me. You've done this. I tithe. I do all this. And I'm glad I'm not like. And you get the impression that he looks down at this guy like this tax collector, like he's at his feet, you know, because it says he would not even look up. The tax collector would not even look up to the altar, but kept his face down in humility, beat upon his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. <coughs> Actually, what he's doing is he's looking back like this. He's looking back here. He knows that that area back there, that the court of the Gentiles is filled with these people. He knows they're back there. And he just spins around and he's pointing back that way because those people had to worship from afar. Okay, And it says that he was worshiping from afar. The Jewish Talmud taught that it was, listen, it was righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. Why? Because that was what a professional extortioner deserved. That was their attitude. And I understand from what I read, that's taken right out of the Talmud. They get what they deserve. Matthew had, in effect, cut himself off just about every way you could be cut off from his people, from God, 
from his religion, everything that you could think of. So, in Luke chapter 15, and I mentioned this earlier when it begins talking about those three parables there, it follows this, it says, or the first verse of Luke 15 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. Wonder how that wonder how that ball got rolling. You ever think about it? They came and they heard Christ. And it's like he said earlier in Luke in chapter five, man, he says, I've come to preach, and I've come to preach repentance. I've come to preach to those who know and who are aware that they need help. They need to be willing to repent. And if you're one of these people who thinks that you don't need repentance, then what I'm saying to you is going to go in one ear and out the other. That's what he's sharing with them. When all the people had heard him, even the tax collectors, it said, justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's from Luke chapter 7. So they've already gotten a following, but the following is from people who know that they're destitute. They know that they need a Savior. The money don't matter. They have their own group. They have their own group of friends. It's not like they're friendless. They just, there's all these, as it says, the tax collectors and sinners and lowlifes or whatever. They gathered together. They didn't have any other friends. They weren't allowed anywhere. They couldn't worship with people. They couldn't eat with people. Their own families had let them go. This was their group. But these were the people who wanted change. It's sad to think that they had experienced all the bitterness, if you will, the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their lifestyle. And yet here's a wonderful, wonderful message. You mean this guy who does all these miracles? Undeniable miracles? Even the religious elite can't deny them. They can only attribute them to the devil. That's the best they can do. They can't say it didn't happen. He cares about us. He would talk to us, you understand? Just to talk to them was a great social barrier coming down. And he would talk to them. He would literally touch them. Just like that woman, that lady who came, that prostitute who came and was just down at Jesus' feet when he's in Simon's house. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Pharisee. He's in Simon's house. Was it uh, Mark 7? He's in Simon's house, and he lets that woman come in there and touch him. That would have been absolute no-no. But here's a guy who will listen. Here's a guy who perhaps cares. And all these wonderful things that he's doing and the power that's behind it, you mean it's available to us, they're saying? So they listen to him, and they come, and they hear, and they come in great droves, it indicates. Matthew having a lot of contact with people face to face. He he knew all this information. It came to him. And he had every chance, he had opportunity every day to process this and to hear and to be drawn to the goodness of God. The common people and the outcast tax collectors who heard John the Baptist preaching acknowledged that what he required by way of repentance was from God and was righteous. They saw it for what it was. So Matthew somewhere got to looking. He got to studying. Maybe he had studied for years. Maybe he had studied as a child. We don't know. 
We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know what access he had. We know certainly that as a tax collector, he was an outcast. So you could assume that, that what he got up front, okay, about the law and the prophets, if you will, you know, from the Bible, from the Pentateuch, that he already had some of that. We could know that. He quotes the law and he quotes the prophets and he quotes the Psalms in Matthew. He does. And I know the writer, um, in one book I read, he said, we know that Matthew knew the Old Testament very well because his gospel quotes the Old Testament 99 times. And that's more than Mark. It's more than, more than Luke, more than John combined. And he does that from all three of the primary areas of the Old Testament, from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms as well. He knew the Messiah was coming. He'd heard about Jesus. And then he got up and he followed Jesus immediately. The Levi gave him, it says, a great feast. Him is Christ. He calls him. Now, if you go back and look at Matthew 9, 9, when he's, when he's called, look at the next verse in Matthew 9, 10. He gets up and he goes. And then it says that he throws him or he throws a party. And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Now, I just read to you from Luke chapter 5, 29. What's interesting here, Luke says that. He identifies Matthew, but Matthew doesn't identify himself as the one who did that when he's writing his gospel. He just says that it happened. And I think, once again, evidence of his humility. And what a wonderful thing it was. And this is where they come by. This would have been, I'm, let me finish up. This is where it would have been <clears throat> the, the way of the Pharisees to walk by Levi's house, oh, they'd gotten word about what was going on, that the master was going to be there. Maybe they were going to try to trick him while he's over there. They go by and there's these hordes of people and Matthew's got enough money to bring them all in and to entertain them and to feed them and to do all this. And Jesus Christ himself is there. And they let him have it. Why do you eat with sinners? Why do you do that? Why do you even associate with these people? And he tells them, because they're the ones who are sick. They're the ones who need the physician. And it's going to get, as we said, it's going to get worse for them in terms of talking to Jesus because he's going to continue to later on let, let them have it, you know, and try to let the reality of their life and just how far from God they are, though they're religious, <coughs> going to bring it all to bear, and they have to deal with it. And unfortunately, their response, by and large, was that they hated him. They hated him.